Welcome to Tiffin Talks, an ideas series curated by Indian Summer Festival, Vancouver. Tiffin Talks showcases a diverse group of thinkers, artists, and innovators gathering to share ideas and a meal together. Every Tiffin Talk features South Asian and Indigenous people in conversation with each other on a wide range of topics. This series was recorded on-site, outdoors, at the seaside ancestral village of Sanok. You might hear the sounds of seagulls and the wind. Tiffin Talks at ISF 2019 was presented by Van City and supported by the Museum of Vancouver. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and the University of British Columbia, media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio, and our funders, the Government of Canada, the City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, the Province of BC, and the BC Arts Council. This talk, Walking in Our Finest, was curated by Jolene Mitten, founder of Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week. Join acclaimed Musqueam weaver and knowledge keeper Deborah Sparrow in conversation with Nep Sidhu, artist and creator of the clothing line Paradise Sportif. Moderated by Meetha Naidu, this talk examines philosophies of contemporary regalia, fashion and adornment, and what it means to walk in our finest. Thank you so much, you guys, for being here. Um, I am also a big fan. Uh, Sirish didn't mention that, but I'm a big fan of both your work. Um, and what I don't want to do in this talk is necessarily talk about you as one entity. You guys are very distinct. You have amazing influences and histories that are very unique to you. So I want to make sure we, we honor that, despite the fact that you're sitting beside each other. And there are common rooted ideas. Um, I want to jump into this because we don't have a lot of time. So there's so many things that are coming up um, in the work. Has anyone researched them before they came to this talk? Did anyone know of them? Obviously, almost everyone here. Okay, perfect. Um, the idea of your work in media has been really interesting. And there's been certain adjectives that media has used a lot for the both of you. Deborah, for you, it's been the idea of revival. And NEP for you, it's been the idea of futurism. So how, how do you negotiate these ideas? Are they accurate? Um, why don't we start with kind of diving into the bigger, broader descriptions of your work? Maybe NEP, do you want to start with that? Yeah, we all put our men go first. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's a lot of pressure. We do in our longhouses. Right. Um, what's the title they're giving me? Futurism? Futurism. Is, it's a word that comes up a lot in your descriptions. Right. Um, I think in mass, the way I've seen that title applied is, uh, if I just be frank, it's a little um, cute and lazy, you know? Um, I find the way it's applied feels, uh, well, a lot of people say Afrofuturism, to right. be specific. Right. And I... I, any word out there that's going to point you to incredible literature, incredible music, incredible practices such as Sun Ra, Eddie Gale, Parliament, <clears throat> Earth, Wind, Fire, any of these groups, Octavia Butler, um, is a great word, you know? If that's the vehicle that's taken young, young minds over into that work, then so be it. Let it go. It's, I think what happens, though, is the this sort of um, limitation that happens by these kinds of words 
and we, even though they're maybe applied and to be cute and to sort of narrow down what, what any one person is doing, they oftentimes in the larger conversation end up limiting, not further expanding the practice. Mm -hmm. um, what are some descriptors that you would use then? I just, I'm at practice at all times. I'm, I'm uh, a description. I don't have, so there's not a really a word in Punjabi as a, that's artist, I don't, and which is, which is common to so many backgrounds. You know, there's things like fast, fast, fast engraver, you know, um, these sort of more function-based things. Yeah. Um, and I guess just because of not having sort of been schooled or have come from any anything of that nature, I just always felt like I was just practicing and making. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Deborah, how do you feel about revival? Well, I, I, I'm the same. Like, I don't really use a word to define what I'm doing. I'm just doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm being responsible for how I feel like my ancestors want to move our people today. And part of my responsibility is to bring forward uh, the beauty and the integrity through, I think, what, what history missed. Um, they, they look at us in one way, and, and, and it's been said many times, uh, if you want to be a little political, that back in time, wherever, wherever savages lived, uh, colonialism could take over because they weren't human. So therefore, anything they looked at us for was not human to them. So after everything that's happened to us in the silencing of our people, uh, I wanted to find a way. Well, I wasn't. I didn't want to find a way. I was actually brought to it. Mm. And, tell, tell us more about that. Well, in a search for self, uh, I shared with Jolene this morning, uh, watching one of my passions was basketball and I was watching uh, Ellen Iverson's story. And it's a story of many of us, uh, whether we're black or Indian or Chinese, whatever cultures we are, we, we do that to cultures. We, um, we put them in a, a little box and our box was a circle in Musqueam and I used to wonder who we were before my awakening and I started to feel a movement within myself to search who we were not only as Musqueam but as women and um, I was amazed when I started to look at um, our history and I wanted to know more so um, we too our visions were lost and there's a beautiful saying without a vision people perish and I really feel we were on the almost on the, the cusp of perishing in some ways, and so um, I think sport really played a big part for my discipline um, in my in my younger years, and it, it made me focus in, and that focus brought me somewhere else after I finished there, and I had to continue this focus, and I wondered what it was about, what what was the discipline about, and I found it in um, in in our people, and I was amazed when I started to see the beauty and the design elements that reflected us and we knew nothing about. And so I really was just on a journey to bring that forward and I think Susan was around the same time that she was a bit ahead of me, Susan Point. Yes, yes, Susan. And she was doing form lines and I began to do form lines and jewelry and I 
also noticed that everything I did with four lines complemented weaving and textiles. And so my other sister, Wendy, we started having these heavy conversations about what were the textiles because we never saw them. Right. We never identified with them. Right. And we got excited. And uh, we have to fast forward that we, we went to work. We, we um, brought them forward. And as we did that, we got to know our women as well and our history. And we were in awe. And the beauty within that, we, we were amazed at the intellect behind the work. It is just not about making a beautiful product. It's about all the steps you make to get there. Same as you did in basketball, you, you trained hard, you you focused, and you you brought the best that you could be to that. And um, sometimes it's not uh, visible. It's something deeper than that that connects you to the threads, and those threads are what we're weaving through the silence of uh, of who we are today and they were connecting to some of us and it was then our responsibility to bring that forward uh, just in a piece for the um, reconciliation for at George and Granville at the church there uh, Christchurch Cathedral and um, when we talked about doing it I they asked me for, for a, a title and I don't think our people spend time titling our blankets pre-contact, but today we always want a title. Right. So uh, mm -hmm. I thought long and hard about whether I'd even do the piece for reconciliation. Was were we at a place where I should do this for a church? Right. And the I got a lot between of the church and, and yeah, uh, yeah residential schools right. and what has happened. And I feel that I'm at a place where I was healed enough to do it, whereas a lot of people are not healed enough to agree with me. But that's okay. Right. Um, because it's important that we take those steps, and um, and I did it to honor them, not so much the church. Right. And so that those designs reflect our history and the positive and the beauty. And when people come to see them, I hope that they see more than just the patterns, but that a people. And so I called them, because for me, as I talk about those threads, I called it um, the golden threads from heaven, because the universe and us being connected to it is like those fine threads that keep us connected to our DNA through that. And it's not visible, but right. if it was, would it look like that? Textile is actually incredibly important in the South Asian diaspora as well. And we see threads, as you describe, um, as often from the divine yeah. um, and connecting culture and connecting spirit and um, if any of the South Asian people here in the audience can, can relate to what I'm saying, textile from different parts of India um, tell stories, their mythology, their narratives, and their identity, and their political. Um, Nep, Deborah speaks so eloquently about her moment of awakening in this trajectory of her design and art. Did you have a similar experience? Awakening. Hmm. I've been like awoken numerous times, you know. Right. It wasn't like a a turning point because I've, I, you know, I, I sort of dropped out of school quite early. Um, I was introduced by um, a brother who was uh, part of the Nation of Islam at that time, who had a, a real rigor and a discipline towards education, and he saw potential in me being lost in uh, not pursuing my own education. I didn't, I didn't understand a relationship of, I didn't sort of wasn't shown um, 
something that was seductive when I was young towards learning. And when I came across him and I came across his level of disappointment um, in me and then his personal time he spent to, to really set sort of this rigor in me and this discipline of learning, it, it sent me back to, to libraries, to books, to start learning on my own accord. Mm-hmm. and to have almost a very strict uh, regimen about it. So those kinds of in- indicators, you know, have helped. I mean, I grew up in a household, a loving household, um, where, you know, the attitude of Sikhi was um, afforded right. to me through practice, through the, commu- through the practice of community. Right. And the way my father practiced that. And so... And I definitely want to get deeper into that mm-hmm. after you finish. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And it's important that when we go forward to exhibit, to share spaces, to um, uh, to look into the systems of display of our expressions and works, and what the language is around that. I mean, for me, and you know, my indigenous brothers and sisters, it's the same that I that I work alongside. That we bring our teachers and our leaders, our um, informers with us you know, who have taught us. We bring them into those spaces. We make sure that the language does not isolate us as a maker and make us as any sort of exception, but points to a larger system of thinking, of sharing, of knowledge, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes that takes a lot, a lot of effort uh, to bring some of that down. And then, you know, the, it's, it's interesting, like recently with the solo exhibition, I get sometimes not not backlash but the feedback i get is why is there such a lack of didactic you know and in 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 certain cases for me it's i i i i think that we can our our most savvy tool is our instinct and i think we've gone into sometimes this formulaic way of uh, experiencing art that it needs to be validated when we come in, there's a rhythm to how we enter spaces and we validate the work through didactic and then we sit in front of it to validate that. There still needs to be a responsible place for people to, who can go to seek information, a la docents or volunteers who've been educated on what the work is about. But um, in terms of it, the messaging, where to leave it loose, where to leave it, leave it open, where to bring your people into, these are all, you know, important considerations these are these are fascinating ideas as we sit in a beautifully open natural environment deborah you mentioned churches we are going through a process of decolonizing artistic spaces right now and thanks to a lot of protest a lot of interest in decolonizing art galleries and museums um, and whatever that means um, that's open for interpretation at another date. Um, how do you guys feel, as you've touched on, about your work being displayed in spaces like that? Well, I don't really display very often in places mm. like that. Um, right. And that's the thing, I think we've, we've taken the colonial way of thinking about anything we look at and say it's art when it, it, it wasn't, it was our life, it was that's our right. reflection of of every part of our life, so when I made a blanket, it wasn't for art. It was because I was going to wear it, and it was going to mean something. And 
we stand on them, we, we wrap in them, we, um, and not only the blankets, but uh, we made a canoe and we used our intelligence to make it to get where we needed to go. We weren't doing it to race in a canoe. Mm -hmm. So that, and I think every culture was that way and is that way today, and I think we've forgotten the general population, and that's why I love sharing conversations with people who have forgotten their way too, because it brings us back to who we are and in this space we're talking about Sanak here, I mean, you know, we, we actually went out and when the Katamaru was here, I uh, hope I'm saying it right, um, Kamagatamaru. The Kamagatamaru yeah. was yeah. here and it idled out here and it wasn't, the people weren't allowed to come That's ashore. Right. Our people went out with food to them. Mm -hmm. So, there are uh, many stories of we that. We have a relationship. Yeah. So, we're, we're, there's currently a new mural going up on Main Street. I don't know if I'm supposed to announce it, but. Um, <laughs> you got to hear they, first. <laughs> they called me and asked me if, if I uh, knew someone to work with them on that mural. So, I actually phoned my. My daughter's mother-in-law, who's an artist, and she's quite a, uh, also someone who um, doesn't necessarily go out into the public either. She keeps everything close to who she is, and she's teaching our grandson, who's 19. Mm -hmm. We're sharing that. Uh, we're sharing teaching him who he is right. through the work, so he's going to have his first interpretation with her. And I'm really excited for him because he's a pretty grounded kid for 19. Mm -hmm. He's very connected, I think, and again through sport because he's very disciplined with he's a high-performance soccer player. Mm -hmm. But in that, I've always raised him to know that to be as good as he can be, it's not about just the physical or the mental. What gets him a little further is his connection to his spirit and who he is. And when he runs this, when he runs this earth in Vancouver and through the forests, that's what's going to get him where he needs to go because he has to stay in touch with who he is and not have the controversy that happened to um, Alan Iverson. He's, they have nowhere to go, you know, and if they had somewhere to go and if they knew their roots, those, everything that's happened, I think people, if they're allowed to maintain their roots, even if it has to be not in the ground they were planted in, then I think we, would, we will have a better world that way. Right. I appreciate that. Um, Medicine for a Nightmare is showing currently at SFU Audane Gallery. Who's seen it here? Anyone Has anyone gone? Yeah? It's amazing. Nep, what do you think about that? What do you think about housing your art in a place like an art gallery at SFU? Um, so I get, like, if I... So what, what's it like to bring the show to Vancouver, in other words? Um, more about the space. Well, <clears throat> the show was a, a tactic, to, if, I, if I'm honest, on my part. Um, an event in 1984, I, I won't make this a history thing, but just, just for context. An I, event, think, I think actually I would love for the audience to hear you describe the event, because it, sure. it connects directly to his work. Yeah. Um, Going back to the Anand Borsab uh, rights that were offered when the original partition was happening in 1947, there was, um, because Punjab was going to be split between Pakistan and India, there were um, a lot of land and water um, rights that were to be assessed and then to be also uh, governed within Punjab. Um, that was the deal because there was, at that time, there was an option to almost leave India and to be with Pakistan as Punjab. Um, but 
in not doing that, uh, we ended up choosing sort of the worst of the of the three options. Uh, and just because of consequence, no one could have seen that. I'm not blaming anyone. Um, we we lost complete complete control of um, our water rights. Our uh, you know uh, the function of Punjab towards the rest of India as a spread basket and how it how it feeds through its five rivers. Um, and that came to a, that came to pretty much uh, from there to fast track what is a typical indigenous story around the world where when a group of individuals become organized and also socially, politically aware and can also then, yeah, or have the ability to organize because of you know, the brilliance of them, um, then they are a threat, a true threat to the nation. And so then there's character assassination, there are um, all kinds of politics and things that start to happen, which is why I said that is, it's, it's almost a typical uh, formula that gets played at that point, which ended up, that the version of that ended up being where um, people in the community, in the Sikh community who were leaders were, were uh, character assassinated and were, were put in a position where then they were, uh, the, the entire temple was attacked by the Indian government as a military attack. That was RSS trained. It was um, everything from stealing all the books and the transcripts from the library, which they say was just burned. Um, it was it was it was a it was a true plan to disconnect um, Sikhs from their culture. I think it was a uh, genocide. As it was well. a genocide. So that's the word I was just going to interject with. Yeah. That that that's a word that commonly gets used for that event in 1984. And that event has been imprinted in intergenerationally in the lives of many Sikh families. And that is what Nep has drawn into his work. When, when I said it was a tactic, so there's been a complete suppression of information um, about this event. And it, it was engineered. So when the attack first happened, there was uh, a month and a half of media blackout. And if at the time everyone remembers 1984, when you used to talk to your relatives, used to be on that phone, those STD phone stations. <laughs> and uh, so everything was cut out. There was no communication in or out. Any, any uh, journalists who started hearing of the atrocity, would, uh, international journalists would show up and they would falsify their documents, then charge them for having false documents and put them in prison. So it gave the uh, global sort of media, uh, <clears throat> global journalists uh, the message that they're not welcome. All the way to now where, well, you know, even in the even after post 1984, they were continuing to murder and or kidnap and murder um, our our best and bravest in terms of uh, human rights lawyers and activists that were raising all the cases of secret cremations. Secret cremations are a tactic that get used so there is no body count, and then they judiciously set it up so it's it, it, you can't. Uh, there's no redress because. The way the Indian government set up the, the trials for um, forced uh, these forced deaths was that the police had to validate the body, <laughs> and the Punjab police was the one who you know were using this tactic. Um, tell tell us how this all informed so, how you so, created right. So so the suppression continues. They continue to murder the, the our, our human rights lawyers or anyone bringing up 
bringing it up to the UN as a case, all the way to now where Amnesty International is still not allowed to set up in Punjab. So we see a complete suppression of information. We see also disconnections happening intergenerationally, also transnationally. Um, and to, in seeing the way that they blocked it, I, I, I looked sort of hard enough at the, at the practice of art making, but also the reporting of it, the, the, the editorial of it, the journalism of it. And I knew in my practice that I had enough attention from various groups, whether it was fashion editorial or, or art critique or, or whatever it was called. I, 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 I looked at those stages as tools to be able to now have this sort of glitch in their matrix of suppression. And so, you know, that type of journalism on the show forces us to open up the conversation. It, I, I, what I want though is for it to be a substantial um, conversation that continues. It, it, I want it to be, I'm not interested in my, my voice. And it, the show comes up, a show comes down. They celebrate you or they hate you and it moves on. But my idea with it, especially as being a traveling exhibition, was to keep including more voices, keep furthering examples of how we listen to each other. Because that's also a, the work of this show is how we listen how we historically have listened and flattened the experience. We, we must do better, you know? And if we do understand what has happened to some of our best, then we have to at least be able to put faith in how we listen, regardless of when, if we're coached to tell, you know, we're coached by people around us to say, well, if you sit down with this person there, they represent the opposite agenda, what you're doing. Good, good. We gotta get to work together. Because then we get we get a better chance at this healing. I'm not you know not interested in um, communicating this to our community who gets it as newsletter reminders anyway of the Holocaust in 1984. I want it to go beyond that. So you start looking at these institutions as also you start to under you know you ask those questions of them of how we can program better. How can we get school buses from this area from these Khalsa schools so I can talk to the kids? How can we and that's why, the, that's why the institution thing for me, this going back to, the, I guess, your first question, is has some interest to me as, as these bricks and, orders, bricks and mortar places that you, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not really interested in sort of going at the educational public programming, you know, in terms of a system. I don't think I'm going to get anywhere, um, but I still want to come in through the front door. And I think this type of practice with the programming and the questions that you ask of institutions when they're interested in your show, you can cut through some of those things that have been either restrained or you know not understood to be important, so that we can share space in that way. So that's why it's a That's why I, I it's say a tool. it's a tactic. Right. Can I can I yeah. just uh, before I forget, I I want to say, uh, as much as I say I don't like to show in galleries, I'm selective about where I do, and. For that reason, I, I feel it's so important in another way because the people who come to view understand the culture in a different way than they would had they not come. So it's been hard for me to share that. Mm -hmm. And even when you look at these, um, some of the designs and some of the masks and the way the Inuit Gallery and a lot of them show our work, or people's work, um, I feel sad sometimes because those were dancing masks that living. have 
spiritual significance to them. Absolutely. And now they're mass produced even by our own people. And so I have to say that in some ways, you know, I had to feel really connected to my textiles first and then I'm doing this commercial line now. And the reason I did it was because I realized not everybody could, I couldn't mass produce a lot of textiles by hand if everybody was interested in my community. So if I if I can share the beauty and integrity and design through the blankets and the commercial line, then then you can take that home and appreciate it. I, w- I want to build on that. Nap, what about you? Commercial commercial dreams? No, I don't got them. No? Mm-hmm. No. I'm, I'm thankful for what I have, though. You know, I'm working with people I've looked up to. Well, Erica Badu, so if you guys are aware, Nep designed an outfit that a legendary R&B and soul singer who has performed here in Vancouver before uh, recently wore. And it was a beautiful kind of artistic piece and made huge waves in the fashion community. Is that something you want to see more of? Yeah, it's kind of the way, it's the way I work. So it's it's ongoing. Um, That's why it's a little sometimes challenging, um, and, and, and I do completely, res- I'm not downing the formula in which, um, say, artists or music artists needs to, need to work with textile or via stylists, etc. that the formula, whatever that is, it's just I, um, more so the work that comes across from the collaborations with uh, music artists such as Ishmael mm-hmm. uh, Butler from Shabazz Palaces, Kahil El Zabar, who used to make clothes for Nina Simone, is a brilliant drummer in his own regard, um, uh, who comes from the AACM history of strong Chicago lineage of jazz. Um, and then yeah, Erica. So they're they're makers in their field. They're not uh, they're not like muses. Uh, I don't kind of that that thing's not really for me. Like we 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 call and respond to each other, and ninety. Five percent of the time, they don't know what I'm making, right? You know, and we keep we keep we keep responding to each other's work. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of the kind of conversation that comes out of the the, the clothing that I think a lot of people end up seeing. What yeah. is the creative process for you in designing a piece like that that ends up on someone like Erica Badu? Uh, I'm I'm usually responding to not. Mm, I mean, you, uh, the way my work has come out, like whether it's been sculpture, script, concrete work, it's 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 just continuing to listen and respond to what is a what feels like um, a harmony or a disharmony to me, you know, in my often my community, and to be able to share some of that through practice with other communities, we we end up ending up. We end up sort of in these, you know, interesting third spaces that have challenges of their own. Um, so that's kind of how the workforce ends up responding. You know, it's it's not it's not a yeah not a formulaic right. creative process in that way. Do you have a creative process, Deborah, that you follow in developing a particular design? Well, I I definitely do, and I think it yeah. again is assisted by uh, that. Uh, desire by my ancestors to push forward our women and how they are reflected mm-hmm. in society and um, 
the blankets are so amazingly beautiful and you know they need to move forward too and come into this world we live in and I've always you know admired all cultures for the beauty that they show through their connection to their histories and their and I don't want to be them and mm -hmm. I don't want to wear them mm -hmm. I want to wear who I am mm -hmm. I want to walk in the beauty of my women and people um, when I can and I want to share that with my history and my people and some people have said to me um, I don't want to wear a Dorothy Grant because I feel like I don't deserve to wear it because she's Haida and I shouldn't wear a Haida garb mm -hmm. and I said well if she's making it commercially she's making it for you so you should wear it but what I love about Salish textiles is that they're very inclusive to the world in another way where geometric forms um, can be shared with, with everybody, but I like to mix them together with the, the Salish form lines too right. and create new products. And I have done fashion and I, I stopped doing it a few years ago because the fellow I was partners with uh, had to go away for four years and I didn't pursue working with someone. But I will pursue it because I feel it's just waiting to come out. It still yeah, wants to come out. I did do the fashion show two years ago, but they Julie. were they were pieces that I stayed I stayed with I kept for the last four years, and they need a move too. Um, and I just think there's so much vision in it, and so much beauty to share with everyone. I do the blankets. I do scarves. Um, I did, I've also moved out of a little bit of fashion into more contemporary, like at the Pillars under the Granville Bridge. So I work with the mural festival people now. Right. And I'm excited about that because it is a political statement whether I like it or not, because mm -hmm. it says something very strong when you approach it. Mm -hmm. That this is, this place we call Snock is our homeland and now we have something that we can reflect from that says, wow, this, it's not a long house, it's a contemporary place. And we'll continue to do it. And we did build more mm -hmm. on 12th and Kingsway, and we're now doing YVR. Wow. And so these elements are coming out, and they're weaving, and we call it weaving our way through the city. And that's what we're going to continue to do, and it's going to just beautify everybody, and everybody's going to love it so much, and themselves so much that we're going to have a better world. The idea of fashion and style was instilled in me as a young child when I learned that my mom only donned saris. And I used to ask her, why don't you wear pants? Why don't you wear a Western dress? I grew up here. Uh, she grew up in Bengal. And she chose, as a young child herself, during the independence movement, to never wear Western garments again. Mm -hmm. And so as seven, at seven years old, she never wore another piece of Western thread again in her life. That was my first dabbling, my first instinct. Um, the Bengali aesthetic of style and fashion is very pristine. And now we have you know, large designers like Sabia Sachi Mukherjee who are making that aesthetic public and commercial. Um, but it's very political. It's steeped in history. It's steeped in colonization. It's steeped in the personal. Uh, and my own father uh, wore khadi, which is homespun cotton um, in India. So these overarching ideas of what contemporary fashion and style mean to me are always steeped in this context. Nep, is that the same for you? these ideas about what style and fashion meant historically for our people? Yeah, um, there, yes, there's a, there's definitely a, 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 well, for me personally, yes, there's a, a necessary attention and education there. Um, 
especially if you're going to look towards any kind of grammar that's going to either further expand on it and be in any sort of line of it. Uh, I think you also have to understand it so you're not simply mimicking um, because that's also something very easy to do with so many of our backgrounds that come from such mastery. Not mimicking, but repeating. Uh, and I think, I think this may touch back to the idea of where sometimes that idea of futurism fails. That if we, we're in touch with our practices of our people through um, technique, intention, knowledge share, then we also, I think, understand that these are people who were living in the now. And sometimes we're in front of places whose audiences are either only interested in nostalgia, you know, because there's an idea of deadness to it, or they're interested in calling you a futurist because that day may never come. <laughs> so there's an escapism sometimes in that. And I think the one thing that we can point to is the nowness that have always been in our people. And we, if, we, if, if we're talking about continuum, then I am saying I'm making in the now, you know, and I, I, I ask for that presence. We don't ask to be in a place where there's later no consequence, you know, or we don't look towards um, emulating and, re you know, repeating things in this way. And which sometimes, you know, is a very, a very easy, obvious example of that to point to is that a lot of my indigenous uh, uh, artists that are both in indigenous that are in both America and Canada face this uh, question, especially contemporary makers, that oh, that's not indigenous enough. Right. It, I mean, they don't. The question of I authenticity. Mean, don't have, right, and people don't have the, you know, often, you know, they won't say that, but, you know, the market might be dictating that or the language around their right. work. Right. Um, and we have, to, we have to be able to stand there and break that down of why that attitude exists. Because if, we're, if we are people that are not looking to simply just repeat, then what are we looking at to be, what, what is our parallel to such a continuum? And I would say that we are looking to repeat its spirit, not its, you know, type of weave or its type of color again or its type. We are looking at the same spirit that made that work and we are continuing in that. Right. And what that may look like doesn't have a code necessarily, you know? Right. If it is a code, we'll carry it, you know, but we won't be defined by it, right. you know? What do you feel about authenticity? Give me your give me your thoughts, Deborah. Well, I agree in one way because I think if you you just talk to your mother, your mother uh, wanted to keep wearing her identity is what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And so if I walk down the street and I see her, I know who she is. Mm -hmm. But if I walk down the street without this on, you just think of another person, which is do I want to fit in or do I want to walk in who I am? And if I do, then then people do have conversations like, why are you wearing your regalia? Why don't you just wear normal clothes? Or uh, who is normal? And you know, why do we always have to go by everybody else's opinions about who we are? And I think that goes to our youth because they're so steeped in social media and they don't know who they are anymore. And they're they're basically crying out a bit to have that. I'm teaching two young girls that are 18 and 14. And they come and they voice their opinion while they're working with me. And my daughter, who's 31, is learning. And um, she's having a bit of a struggle, too, because the world takes her away from it. 
and I'm I'm pretty good at staying focused because I don't allow the world to take me away anymore. I'm in the world, but not of the world. Is what I like to say. That Buddhist okay. phrase. Okay. Um, so you know, it's um, it's really hard because if I keep making what I know my ancestors made, you know, um, and only using them for those certain occasions, then are we are we moving? And I think we just want to move. We want to move and we want to stand by your beautiful saris and somebody else's beautiful work and say, now we have this to offer. Because we never seen it for 85 years. It was gone. Mm -hmm. We had no identification mm -hmm. at all. And we honored and we looked in awe of the Northwest Coast people and the Southern people. And we were like, wow, they have beautiful work. And we didn't know because it was, they did a really good job of taking it away from us. Right. And, um, and once owning it. it well, yeah, it's in museums for sure, um, but, you know, the, the emergence of it again is, is giving our people um, their sense of, uh, the blanket I'm wearing, by the way, um, I see five minutes over there. Um, <laughs> so much to do. <laughs> yeah, the blanket I'm wearing is to honor my great-grandmother who was the last, uh, with her husband, removed from Stanley Park. Her name was Matilda, so this is my Matilda blanket, it identifies her and honors her um, as she was removed from her home and it was burnt down as she walked away. Right. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it is our identity and we, we wear it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we also like to share it. You know, people have asked right. me, should I, is it okay to wear your scarf? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I, then it, it shows me that the movement we're having within ourselves is, is, is a good thing. Right. Can I ask, yeah. Deborah, do you mind if I ask you a question? Um, so in, 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 the, in the work uh, moving forward, you know, aside from, as, as, as you're not also interested in certain, the exceptions that may be, may be shown or re represented, whether it's auction sales or institutions, um, the, f the expanse of that making within your community be it the, the messaging that's around it, the naivety around it, the exploitation, exotification, whatever that is around the making going forward and being shared further, where are the, where the, where could it be better in your eyes that people of, in your line can see the, what that participation the calling of that participation and, and the richness of that participation. Where do you see that disconnect and where could it be better? Well, uh, well, first of all, the disconnect lies within our own community. We don't even connect with it. Uh, I've been weaving for 30 years and this is the first time I'm going to pass um, some of those teachings on. And it's not just about weaving, it's about the history and the foundation and it's sometimes political. You know, I'm not going to just teach somebody how to weave technically. I'm just not going to say, okay, this is how you go in and out. This is how you dye wool. Every step that I take, I'm, we're, I'm educating about why we did it, how we did it. It's all about education. It's about history. It's about identity. And in our community, the impact has been so good on colonialism that there isn't anybody who, you know, but the, the longer they see it, the more they see it, the more they're starting to grasp it now. And um, being in the show again two years ago with Jolene's show, um, 
everybody saw the possibilities, I think, of what what beauty does reflect in in culture. So um, it's not just about a beautiful garment that you wear either. It's like it says something to you. You know, I, I, I was going by the mall yesterday. I went by Banana Republic. And in the window, they had all Muslim rugs and the women standing in front of them with the designs. So, you know, I thought, wow, you see, that's kind of the direction I kind of want to go still is to be able to, the designs speak for themselves and they reflect um, the beauty of the women. But, you know, if that's a connection where there was a disconnect, then that's good. And we're all threads, as I've said many times on the masterpiece, it goes beyond just what we're looking at. It, 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 the beautiful flower she has in her cape. Um, you see? Her see, it was her grandmother's. Yeah. And, um, and, that, and that, that, that connects us. And there's so much disconnect in the world because that's how they controlled us in the first place. They disconnected us from everything. So then they're able to control just like what happened in 84. Oh, wow. You know, we, we're not aware of that whole, like we feel like we went through something while well, you went through something. Your people over there went through it. And I watched a program on The Last Czar on Netflix and the beauty of, of what Russia represented at one time and then the fall of it. And I was like, you know, we think we got a oh, tough year. Well, gee, let's just keep working on the beauty. Thank you to both of you um, for your time and your honesty. Uh, I asked questions that I wanted to hear the answers to. <laughs> so I hope that everyone else got something out of this. Um, NEP, in my humble opinion, I know I really don't think that there is work that is more exciting right now and that is such an exciting reconsideration of ideas. And I'm honored that you are here. And Deborah, I think your work becomes proxy for the deeper conversations that we need to have. And it's powerful, and we can't have this elsewhere. Fashion and art, as Jolene knows, um, is really that place where we can have these beautiful conversations and explore these ideas. And I'm really moved by it, and I, I thank you both for being here and to understand your differences in approach, but also understanding your your similarities in approach. It's been fascinating. Um, go see their work everywhere. Well, Maya Angelou says we're as much as alike as we are different. Right. So let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate that and, yes. and honor the artists by seeing their work and thinking about it in the context of what they've said today. And support artists everywhere. Fashion mm -hmm. designers, yes. Thank you so much to both. Thank you.